0: Hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to get started, but I want to let you know something. One we're going to have, we said the night will be about Jesus, um, media, and Muslims. And so I, I want to start, first of all, um, to address that there's, there's, there's a diverse audience here. There are people who are here who believe in Jesus as Christians. There are people who are here who are Muslim. And there are some of you are here that are neither, um, but just want to hear the topic. And so I ask that we would understand that and we'd be able to be able to join together and um, uh, be able to respect one another. In um, a second here, we're going to show a video to start of our night. And I, and I want to say this just as a lead pastor of redemption. The video in itself is something we put together, our team put together, in order to start the night. Um, the video is not something we're saying this is the way things should be. We're just looking at the video and saying this is the way things are. And I think the video in itself is going to give us a great opportunity to have Jim come up and to be able to discuss um, why it is the media portrays um, a particular group of people the way that they do. To be able to have Jim and himself give us about 40 minutes of discussing and giving us uh, talking points on how to understand a particular community, community group, especially the Muslims who are here. And then also have a panel of people, uh, some themselves who have a belief um, in Islam, to be able to facilitate questions. Now, different than a normal uh, night, we are not going to have texting questions. If you were on Facebook or you were on the city, uh, we we sent a message out saying we wanted the questions earlier. Primarily, uh, many of our uh, people that will be here are second, English is their second language. And so we're going to be able to get them the questions in advance so they can answer. Um, So they can answer the questions, uh, instead of having Christians answer the questions about Islam, we can have people who believe in Islam to answer those questions. And so without further ado, um, I want you guys to direct your attention to the screen, and you can watch the video, and Jim will come. The fires of anti-Americanism are burning around the world tonight.
1: Questions swirl today about the death of the U.S. ambassador to Libya
0: protest here in Beirut today was bigger than anything we've seen so far anywhere in the region or beyond.
2: But this region is a powder keg. In Pakistan today, more violent demonstrations.
0: There were anti-film protests in at least seven other countries today. Stop disrespecting Muslims. Stop disrespecting our religion should have the freedom of speech, freedom to do whatever they want?
2: Yeah, but not when it comes to religion. Violence in response to speech is not
3: acceptable.
0: He's called the film, which mocks the Prophet Muhammad, the worst insult to Islam ever. The extremists are enemies of America and should be dealt with in the harshest terms possible. But but, the only thing these radical Islamist fanatics understand is brute force. They kill four of ours, you kill 400 of theirs.
2: When our embassy has been breached by protesters, uh, the first response should not be to say, yes, we stand by our comments that uh, suggest that
3: uh, there's something wrong with the right of free speech. Governor Romney seems to have a tendency to... uh shoot first and later.
1: Not the performance that Mitt Romney has put on here is that it lacks a certain dignity.
0: I think this president is a wimp.
1: The United States doesn't have an option of withdrawing from the world. Pretty intense, huh? Well, it really is. A privilege of mine to be able to address this topic. This is a topic that I think is very important. We've, we've entitled it Media, Muslims, and Jesus. Specifically because uh, every time that there's something that goes on in the media, uh, it often brings up a lot of questions about who are Muslims, how do we as Christians interact with Muslims. And I want to tell a story, a story that I think really will illustrate what's going on in the world. I want to tell you a story. As many of you know, I, I lived in Turkey for about three years. And during my time in Turkey, I had an interesting interaction. I saw this, this guy, this shop owner, and I thought, you know what? I want to get to know that guy. I didn't know what kind of shop he had or anything, and he just seemed like someone I should get to know. So I... Went down to his shop one day, opened the door, and immediately, I, I, I could recognize that he was a fairly religious guy. And there were about five or six other men in there. They were religious as well. They had Quran, Quranic verses um, all on the walls. They were using very religious language. And then one, one of the guys uh, sat me in the middle of the room, and people just started asking me questions. Uh, why are you here? Uh, where are you from? Where do you live? Just question after question. Then a guy came up from behind and he took a straight edge razor and he kind of grazed it along my neck right here. Drew a little bit of blood. Then there was a guy who took this long match, he, he, or it's like a stick or something like that, and he lit it on fire and he waved it around my eyes and kind of along my face here. And then someone else, or the, the same two guys, filled this basin of water. And they, they, they put my face in there, and they were splashing my face. And then finally, they, uh, they, they took all the money that I had. And I think any American, especially in any American man, who would go to a predominantly Muslim country, this is the type of experience that I think you would have. And I have a picture from that day. Would you guys throw up the picture? Can you see that? I'll let it sink in. What I have just described to you is an experience at a Turkish barbershop. <laughs> First, you go in there, and they ask you a lot of questions. They ask you questions because they genuinely want to get to know you. Uh, and I've been in a number of predominantly Mus- uh, with uh, Muslim population uh, countries, and they've, they've all asked me lots of questions and wanted to get, wanted to, get to know me. Furthermore, they, they do the best shaves there. They get really close, and sometimes it draws a little bit of blood. Um, second, they take this, little, uh, this long match, and they singe the white hairs off of your eyes and off of your ears. It's great. And then they uh, fill the basin with water. They splash water on your face, clean your face, give you a nice massage, And then when it was all said and done, I didn't have enough money to pay for the whole service. So they said, don't worry about it. Just give us whatever you have. So they took all my money. (laughs) Uh. Now, as I was telling that story, isn't it interesting how it's so easy for us to imagine an American guy being tortured or threatened by Muslims. Yet it is so hard for us to imagine something like a barbershop and a normal American guy having a good time building friendships with some Muslims. Why is that? I mean, I believe that a lot of it has to do with the, the video that we just saw. The footage that we see in the media and how controversial and how lopsided and how extreme it is the vast majority of the Muslims in the world are the, are the folks who will hang out with you in a barbershop. There are a few, and it is a very small number, who are violent like that, but you get that in the news almost every day. Why is this? I, I have a few thoughts. One, one thought would be this. One thought would be the media... Is responding to an audience. The media is responding to an audience that has a certain type of appetite. See, the media does shape us and it shapes our view of Muslims and of other people and of other things, but we also shape the media because the media has to sell advertising. The media has to have readership. And we tend to be an audience that wants, first of all, we want things quick and easy. We like our information coming in 140 characters or less, right? Or maybe sometimes 200 words. But the media often doesn't have opportunity. Really good journalists don't have the opportunity or the space to give our uh, nuanced, historical, in-depth analysis. Two is that the media does have a bias. A lot of people say it's biased to the left or it's biased to the right. But the, the bias of the media is the controversy. It, we are people who love to hear dramatic stories and dangerous things. And so the media gives us what we ask for. So it, it doesn't give you the normal. It gives you the extreme. And furthermore, we are people who don't want information. We're people who want confirmation. We don't want the news to give us The the raw what's happening. Rather we prefer. Getting news that confirms. What we already want to believe. And so that's why there's this polarization. That tends to be happening in the media. Now here's what the problem is. 62% of Americans say. They've never met a Muslim before. So that means their primary way. That they're learning about Muslims. Is through the media. Now. Now. You may think I'm giving the media a little bit of a hard time or maybe even us as an audience. But I want to point the finger at somebody else. I want to point the finger at me because this subject of media and Muslims and Jesus, it is not an abstract concept to me. It hits home. A few weeks after 9/11, It was my my first few weeks in college. I was 18 years old, just barely an adult. I walked into the hallway, and I saw people huddled around a TV, and they were watching the planes as they crashed into the building. And I went home that day, and I turned on the television. And day after day, week after week, I was being shaped by what I saw, the images I saw in the media. I think at that point, I stopped functioning as a disciple of Jesus and started functioning as a disciple of the television. And it eventually shaped such an animosity in me and that it turned into disrespect and bitterness and vengeance towards Muslims. So the way I responded is, is I, if, it was, if I wasn't so dang lazy... I would have enlisted in the military to fight Muslims. I was down in the, in the recruiting offices talking to them, asking how I could get in. And then they said, you had to run a lot. So I said, no, thank you. Uh, but if it wasn't for my sin of laziness, a worse sin of a vengeful heart against my neighbor would have prevailed. And, and, and I'm not saying anything necessarily About the military. I think the military has its role. But there is something that all of us should agree on. That a vengeful heart like that and Jesus are inconsistent. And fortunately, someone told me that. Back in those days, there were some people who were confronting me with scripture. Confronting me with God's word. And saying, Jim, the way you are speaking and acting towards Muslims is absolutely inconsistent with who Jesus is. So you either stop associating with him or you repent. And it led me to a time of repentance and reflection. I opened up my Bible and I started to see what Jesus was in a, in a new light and his love for others. I started to see God's love for all nations. And it moved me. It was amazing. And it transformed me. And eventually, myself and a guy named Rick Love and some other folks, we were talking about what are the the peacemaking teachings of the Bible. And we began to think about something called multidimensional reconciliation, which is all about Jesus reconciling us to God and reconciling us to each other. And how a vision like that is really needed in a conflicted world that we live in. And this vision eventually led for my wife and I, to move overseas. We moved to Turkey. My wife worked as an English teacher. I tried to start a bunch of businesses that failed. Um, I was a basketball scout who didn't know anything about basketball. Um, But what I did do is I learned a little bit of Turkish. I built relationships. And some of my best friends became Turks. And we got to really become like family to each other in many ways. And I got to to walk in their world, and depend on them, and really know what it's like to to befriend and to live in a in a Muslim a country with a predominantly a Muslim uh, population. Now, uh, when I was there, I had this amazing conversation. I had this friend, um, this Turkish friend. We would get together, we would have coffee with each other, and we would. Uh, we we would read the Quran and we would read the New Testament and we would have discussions about them together. And he read Luke 6 when it talks about when Jesus says to love, to bless, to do good, to even give money to your neighbors and even your enemies. He looked me in the eye and he said, this is one of the most amazing teachings I've ever seen. Have Christians ever read this? this is awesome. He said, you got to go back and tell him. Because he said, if Christians really believe this, it would turn the world upside down. Now, over the years, uh, as I've been working through this stuff, uh, and after that conversation, I eventually joined with a a guy named Rick Love and co-founded an organization called Peace Catalyst International, which focuses on Christian-Muslim relations. And I started another organization called the International Guild of Visual Peacemakers. I co-founded that one, which uses photography and videography to break down stereotypes of the other. And I've I've started a number of peacemaking um, organizations, and I've had opportunities to speak uh, at at mosques, at churches around the U.S. on, on topics like this. But I think one of the most important things I can do for this topic is to be here as your pastor. Because it's, it's fine to talk pie in the sky, to drop in one place and have a little talk and then leave. But you should know that I speak about these things tonight as one who is with you. Who's going to walk with you through this stuff. And that the words that I speak, I know that I can't flee and get out of here, but I'm accountable for these words. So we're here together. And as your pastor, I've been thinking about what are some of what's the text that can help shape the way that we view our Muslim neighbors, that it gives a more beautiful and powerful vision and more of a loving vision than what we saw in those clips from the media. And I believe, and there are so many texts, but I believe the one that we should land on tonight is the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'll set the context for this. Uh, Jesus is hanging out with a a number of Jewish people, and he's answering questions, and he ends up telling a story about a Samaritan. Now, what's a Samaritan? A Samaritan is, um, a Samaritan essentially was the ethnic, political, and religious enemy, the other for the Jews. They didn't like each other. They had a lot of things in common, theologically, they had some serious differences, but, but the oral tradition of their day made them really not like each other. As a matter of fact, they would walk a long distance out of the way when they were on a journey, just so they could avoid each other. And this is, this is really the context that Jesus is speaking to. And I believe that this story can shape the way that we think about these things. So let me read, starting in Luke 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer. Now, a lawyer was like a theologian. It was a a Jewish law expert. So this person stands up and asks Jesus a question. Says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, who is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus says to him, flips it, flips the question back on him. He says, What is written in the law? And how do you read it? And then the man answered, he said, Uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now Jesus thinks this, this this is a pretty good answer. Love God with everything. And, and love your neighbor as yourself. This was essentially Jesus' message when he was on the earth. He was preaching the kingdom of God and talking about, uh, he was taking this verse from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, called the Shema, which means to hear. It was one of the most important central creeds of the Jewish people uh, about loving God with your heart, soul, and mind. And he brings it together with Leviticus 19, a passage in Leviticus 19 about loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' message was, not only are, is this what you're called to do, but Jesus is essentially saying that he, that through him, is the way to accomplish those things. So it's this beautiful vision. But the conversation isn't over. The lawyer, this, little, this theologian, says that he's trying to justify himself, he's trying to test Jesus. He asked the question, who is my neighbor? And I think a lot of us actually ask that question, because what's behind that question is, what are the boundaries of love? Who do I have to love, and who can be my enemy? Now it's a tri- I think that there might be something going on here with a trick question, because he's either going to get off the hook if Jesus says, "Only love these people. these are the only ones that are your neighbors." Or if Jesus says, "Everybody," even the Samaritans and the Romans. That would sound like a completely unpatriotic statement in Jesus' day. And so I wonder if the the lawyer, the theologian there is trying to trick Jesus and get him to, to say some unpatriotic thing. Now, this is when Jesus shows his absolute brilliance. Because Jesus doesn't just give him a straight answer. He tells him a story, a brilliant story that cuts to the heart of things. And, and essentially, here's the story. There's a man, presumably a Jewish man, who's walking down the road. And then out of nowhere, robbers come and they beat this guy up. And he's bleeding on the ground and he's in pain. And then a Jewish priest walks by, looks at him, and he keeps going. He doesn't stop and help him. Whoa. We're going to do an interview up there. That's why we've got the table here. Not in case I fall over. So then the next thing, the next person walks by. It's a Levite. And this was like an assistant priest. So he, he he walks by and he doesn't help either. And then finally, a Samaritan, the ethnic, political, and religious other, walks by, sees this man on the road. He picks him up. He puts him on his, on his animal, maybe a donkey or something like that. Which means that he's going to have to take whatever's on there and carry it himself. And he takes this, this injured Jewish man to an inn. And he gives his money two days wages. And he says, let me pay for everything for him. Any medical problems he has, I'll take care of it. He, he needs a place to stay, I'll pay for it. This is the story, essentially, that Jesus tells. And then Jesus... Looks everyone in the eye, and he asks the question Who was the good neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And this Jewish lawyer, he's trapped. Jesus has told this brilliant story. So he squeezes out the answer. He says, The one who showed him mercy. He doesn't even say the word Samaritan. And then that's when Jesus gets really scandalous. He says, That's right. You go and do likewise. And that's scandalous because here's this upright, pious, religious, authoritative figure. And Jesus is saying, you, go act like this Gentile, I just, uh, this, this Gentile, this Samaritan that I just told you about. So I think that this story is powerful and there are some things that we can draw out of it. And I essentially want to ask three questions to this text tonight before we interview some of my Muslim friends the first question is, how are Muslims like the Good Samaritan? The second question is, how is Jesus our ultimate neighbor? And the third question is, how can we love our neighbor like Jesus? So let's start with the first question. How are Muslims like the Good Samaritan? Now, I think that there, it's not a perfect parallel, but there are some parallels between the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans in Jesus' day and the, the way that Christians and Muslims are speaking about each other and interacting with each other in, in this day. The, they had an oral tradition back then that was causing fear and, 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 and a rhetoric that was causing distance and suspicion. But they also had some theological similarities in, in Christians and Muslims, we have some theological similarities in that we're both drawing from the Old Testament, the Jewish tradition. But there were also some, some differences. There's some significant differences. And Jesus, when he's telling this story, he doesn't gloss over the differences. He doesn't, he doesn't search for a, a common ground that isn't necessarily there. But what he does do is he honors and he tells a story That gives dignity to the Samaritan. And that challenges the ethnocentric and racist hearts of those who are around. Jesus tells a story and he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Now I wonder if Jesus was walking around in a Christian church today. If he wouldn't tell some similar stories. Maybe he would tell a group of us the story of the good Muslim. And maybe if he was walking among some Muslims, maybe he would tell them the good Christian. I don't know. But let me tell you some of those stories. He might talk about the the Uma Community Clinic in L.A., a group of Muslim doctors who has come together in a time when we're all squabbling about health care. They go into one of the poorest neighborhoods where there is no health care, and they donate their time. And they give health care to people who need it and who are really sick. A Muslim Samaritan. I wonder if if Jesus would tell that story. Or maybe he would tell the story about some of my Uzbek friends. Who've been through an incredible amount of pain and suffering for their faith. They're they're, they're conservative Muslims. Who were in a, a, a country that's predominantly Muslim. But doesn't like... Uh, The the government's a little bit more secular-minded, and so came down on them brutally, separated from families, unbelievable amounts of pain. I wish I could fully articulate, and we had time to say what they've gone through. But they've come here as refugees since uh, 2006. They have started 12 businesses in the Phoenix metro area, 12 businesses. And when I ask them why they do it, they say they got here, they turned on the news, and everyone was talking about how the economy was bad, and you need to create more jobs. So they said, we have nothing else to do. Let's just go start some businesses and create some jobs. Pretty cool, huh? Maybe Jesus would tell the story of what happened with me in in Turkey, um, with with our Turkish doctor. See, what happened was we had this amazing doctor. Her name was Dr. Ebru. I think her name still is Dr. Ebru. She hasn't changed it since then. Uh, she was a great doctor. She gave us her home phone number for every crazy question we had for her. Um, and she did a great job in delivering our, our daughter who was born in Turkey. We actually named our daughter after her. Our daughter's middle name is Ebru. And... Uh, Everything was, was fantastic uh, in our little life. Jenny and I, we were, we, had been, uh, we were parents for six weeks. We had this beautiful little baby. And I kid you not, we were having dinner talking about what the future was going to look like for us. And then something crazy happened. Jenny started to not feel well. She started bleeding. I don't know what's going on. She passes out. I'm in a panic. I pick up the phone and I call Dr. Ebru. And Dr. Ebru says, uh, Get to the hospital as soon as you possibly can. By this time, my friend had come over and, and he was, he was going to help me. This is, it's late at night, it's like midnight. And we pick Jenny up and we carry her down four flights of stairs. We, we catch a taxi, we put her in the taxi. And Jenny's in and out of consciousness. We're driving to the, to the hospital. And I am begging God for this taxi to move faster. First time I have ever in a foreign country begged God for a faster taxi. But I was begging him for a faster taxi. Then we arrived. And when we pulled into the driveway of the hospital, you would not believe what I saw. Dr. Ebru was waiting for us. You see, she had worked a 12- or 13-hour day, gone home, fell asleep, and my call woke, woke her up. And I could tell that she had been asleep because her hair was all messy and she still had the sleepers in her eyes. Uh, but she rushed to the car. They put Jenny in the gurney and they put her in, a, they rushed her off to surgery and Dr. Ebru was in there. She, Dr. Ebru told me it would be 30 to 45 minutes before I heard anything. And it was not 30 to 45 minutes. It was three hours. And I'm in the hospital holding my six-week-old daughter. I'm wondering, am I going to be a single dad at six, with a six-week-old? Will this girl ever get to meet her, her mother? Will she ever have a memory of her mother. And. Oh, man. I tell you. There is no good news. Like hearing footsteps in the hall. Knowing. That it's your wife that's coming through. And it's, it's the the doctor. So they wheeled Jenny in. And she was alive. And Dr. Everu told me that. Had she waited. Had we waited longer. There's a chance that. Jenny could have had some serious. Uh, brain injuries, or even potentially could have died. Now, Dr. Ebru and I, we had had a number of conversations on spiritual things. And there are some places where we had common ground, but there were some places where we really differed. For example, the divinity of Jesus. She, like most Muslims, did not believe in that, and me, like most Christians, did. And here's the deal. In a a world like ours, we don't need to sit around and figure out how to make our theologies perfectly work and pretend that we all believe the same thing. But what we need to do is be like Dr. Ebru and answer the midnight call for each other. Dr. Ebru was a good Samaritan uh, to us. And I wonder if Jesus wouldn't have told that story. Now, as I've told these positive stories about Muslims, it might make some of you uneasy. Now, some of you, it might be a theological thing. You don't know how Jesus can affirm the Samaritans and how I can talk, talk about these things. And one thing I would say to that, I'll be very quick, is we need to develop a, a good theology of sin and depravity as well as a good theology of common grace. And I'm not even going to get in that tonight, but I'm going to send some resources out on a blog and through through the city tomorrow. Others, as I told that story, you really resonated with that story. Others didn't like it because, frankly, you don't want to believe good things about Muslims. And I think this is why Jesus told the the story, to confront people who have that that sort of heart. And my only word to you is, repent, because you're living in a way like I was, that's inconsistent with Jesus. And then, thirdly, there are some people who are genuinely concerned, who are afraid, who may have actually lost someone that they cared for uh, in 9 11. And I don't want to make light of what you're feeling right now because it's serious and it's real. But I do, as your pastor, want to speak good news into that. And here's the good news. It's our second question. How is Jesus the ultimate Samaritan? How is Jesus the ultimate neighbor? Now, what's happening in, as Jesus tells this story is he's telling this story not just in isolation, but it's in the broader context of Luke. Luke. And if you're reading the book of Luke, you will come to see that what Jesus is essentially doing is he's pointing to himself. He's pointing to the type of love that he has, where he pours out all he has for the sake of the other. And, and the, the, the good Samaritan gave two days wages, but Jesus gave his whole life. Now, in the context like this, it's sometimes controversial to talk about the cross because it is a subject that Muslims and Christians tend to disagree on. But I'm going to camp there because I'm speaking to a group of, of Christians, and I want to minister to your heart with some of the implications of this good news of the cross. First of all, through the cross, Jesus frees us from the fear of death. Hebrews uh, 2 talks about how Jesus tasted death so that we would not have to taste death. And how that through his death, he killed, he did away with death. And there are some of us who are genuinely afraid. We see things on the news and we really want God to protect us. We want anything to happen. And if there is a threat, we want it taken care of because we don't want to die. Well, you are going to die, just so you know. Like, 100% of you are going to die. It's bad news, but, but it's true. But you don't have to be afraid. Because through the death of Jesus, he has conquered death. And know this. That while we might experience death, we will be risen with Christ through the work that he did on the cross. And that we will be with God. And a, a God who will restore all things who will wipe away every tear from every eye and restore full justice. Second, through the cross, Jesus empathizes and enters into our suffering. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus descended and he entered into our world, into this messed up world that, you know, we saw these, these, the, the clips of this footage, all the brokenness in the world. He empathizes with us. He's gone through our pain. And for any of us who have lost someone in in something like 9-11, who have been a part of this conflict and have gone through some pain, know that your God empathizes with you and has entered into your pain and can relate to your pain through the cross. This is good news. This is good news if you're a fireman. Who rushed into a building on 9-11 and inhaled smoke? That and now you have cancer and you're dying from it. Know that Jesus knows what you're going through. This is good news, not just for the firemen and that fireman's family and the whole city of New York, but it's also good news across the ocean to the Palestinian man who holds his dead daughter in his hands, who was killed by an Israeli bomb, Jesus can relate to that pain as well. Same thing with the Israeli man who holds his wife, who's dying, who is caught in in a a suicide bomb. Jesus can relate through the cross to that suffering. He can relate to the the pastor who's killed for his faith. He can relate uh, to all of us who have experienced any sort of pain, he can... Jesus... I'm going to say this, this is scandalous here, but I think the gospel is scandalous here. Jesus can relate to the pain and the suffering of the man who's in Guantanamo Bay, who, was, who has never had a fair trial, who's been tormented and humiliated, and wonders if he will ever see his family again. Through the cross... Jesus relates to our pain, so we don't have to be alone. And third, through the cross, Jesus shows us that while we were once, en- we were once uh, God's enemies, we have now received mercy. We can't walk around this world in a haughty way, in a bold way, talking about us and them, because there is only one true us and them, humanity and God. That's the us and them. And we are, as humanity, the ones who rebel against him. But through his great mercy, he has reconciled us to himself. He has extended love and mercy to us through the cross. So this should humble us and make us people of mercy and forgiveness in a graceless world. Now, as we talk about the cross, it is the distinct thing about what we believe but my question is, do we really believe it? Because there is a way to have a theology of the cross and a theology of the gospel, but completely miss the point, And to live out of step with the gospel. Peter was called out for this. When he wouldn't sit with a group of Gentiles, as a Jew, when he wouldn't sit with a group of Gentiles, Paul called him out and said, that is wrong. And you are, you are living in a way that's out of step with the gospel. If Peter's life, his conduct, could be out of sync with the gospel, how much more ours? We're a reformed church. And, and if you're someone like me, I love theologians like, like Martin Luther. He's a great theologian. And Martin Luther has probably one of the main people who's helped us understand the implications of the cross. However, even he missed it in some certain areas of his life. Believe it or not, Martin Luther wrote a book. It was called On the Jews and Their Lies. And in that book, he had six points. And among them were he was calling for, this, for all Jews in that area to be enslaved for them to go around burning synagogues and schools of Jewish people to give a special tax and take money from them. And that if any of the rabbis preached that they be killed, Martin Luther, one of the great theologians of the faith missed it. Didn't understand Some of the implications of the cross. And later on, that was used by Hitler as propaganda in the Holocaust. Now, what do we do when we hear things like that? It shouldn't make us disregard Martin Luther, but it should make us tremble and ask the question where are we missing? Because the same theological justification happened in the Crusades, in slavery, and a number of other things. Let it humble us and let us ask the question. And the question that we must ask is our final question How should we love our Muslim neighbors? And if I've got a friend, Jeremy Courtney, he moved his entire family to Iraq to love and to befriend Muslims. And he's got a quote that he's, he's uh, used to saying, and I like it. You gotta listen to it to really hear the, the implications here. He says, The cross isn't just a substitution. That gets us off the hook. It's an example. That puts us back on the hook. So yes it's a substitution. That deals with our sin. And makes us right with God. And takes us off the hook for our sin. But it puts us back on the hook for love. And and this uh, fits with scripture. Because in 1 Peter 2. Verse 21 and 22. It talks about. For to this you have been called. Do you want to know what your calling is? It's this. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. The self-giving love of Christ on the cross is what should shape the way that we love others. So pretty soon I'm going to invite some some of my Muslim friends up here and we're going to do a little bit of an interview. But I want to give you a little glimpse of what this love looks like. I mentioned my friend Jeremy. He moved his entire family over to to Iraq. And he said, you know what? Rather than a preemptive strike, I want to be about preemptive love. So he moved his family there and he started this organization called the Preemptive Love Coalition. And they essentially sell shoes and do everything they can, Kurdish shoes, to fund heart surgeries for Iraqi children. And they funded hundreds of them. And he's having a great time in friendships with Muslims. And it is him, he, he came to this conclusion that he was not to live in his home in Texas, but to live in Iraq when he sat down and watched the news but read his Bible at the same time and said that I'm going to follow in the way of Jesus and go to Iraq. Now, not all of us go to Iraq, right? Maybe. I've got a plane uh, booked for us. Anyone else want to go after this? Um, But but some things that my wife and I have tried to do. We've had a spare bedroom in our house, and we've said, we're going to host international students. And we've had seven Arab students live with us. And it's been a fantastic experience. We don't have much, and I can't figure out how to sell shoes to do heart surgeries, but we've got a spare bedroom. And the, the way of Jesus is to take the simple things that you have and say, how can I use this and leverage this to love my neighbor? And uh, finally, I mean, the things that we do with uh, Peace Feast. That the whole concept of a Peace Feast is that you get all of your friends together at an international restaurant and you give them your best day of business of, of their year. It's like a cash mob. But I started doing these things when I noticed... That after 9-11, people started, they stopped attending some of the restaurants that were owned by Muslims. I said, no, that is not the way of Jesus. We're going to get everyone we know. We're going to go there. We're going to give them a great day of business. And we're going to tip like crazy. I want to give you some some baby steps. Uh, Seek out, one is, seek out friendships with Muslims. There are a lot of Muslims in the Phoenix metro area. And they may live on your block or be in your class or at school, and go, go meet them. Now, in, in Phoenix, for some reason, it's part of our culture, that it's very awkward to meet anyone out of the blue, right? So here's what you do. You, you make some cookies, you find out uh, where someone lives, and you go bring it to them. It will be a little bit awkward, but Jesus absorbed your sin on the cross. You can absorb a little bit of awkwardness, right? Um, Two is guard your words. There is a whole industry out there of people who are making a lot of money of writing things that slander Muslims. And slander is to have no place in our mouth. So don't forward the crazy email that you got from your Uncle Howard. (laughs) Don't send it. When someone brings something up in conversation that doesn't sound quite right, Ask them where they got that information and and really see if it's true. Guard your words. Don't just repeat some random thing that you heard about Muslims. Because our mouths are to be set apart and preserved for something better. And that's speaking the good news of the gospel. And in relationship with uh, your friends who are afraid, speak the gospel. And as you make uh, good news, uh, as you make friends with Muslims... Talk about Jesus. It's rare that I've ever met a Muslim who wouldn't want to have a conversation with you about Jesus. Three, let the media be your prayer guide. If you're going to watch the news, great. But don't let it kindle inside of you fear and hate and anger. Let it kindle inside of you a love for your neighbor and a cry that goes out to God to make things right. And the fourth thing is listen. We need to let Muslims speak for themselves. We shouldn't be the ones who are trying to define what what Islam is. Let them say what they believe. Furthermore, if we really are going to love our neighbors, then we need to get to know our neighbors, and you get to know your neighbor through listening. James says to be slow to anger and slow to speak, but quick to listen. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to have a little conversation with a few Muslim friends. We're going to ask them some questions. And we're going to get to know their world a little bit, know about about what they believe, and give them an opportunity to speak for themselves. Uh, So would you give a hand to a few of my friends who I've I've invited here tonight who are going to come up here. got the water here, the handheld mic. All right. So you guys are going to have to share this mic here. Usama, you want to start out? Um, so I've invited a few friends here tonight. We have, uh, first of all, Usama, who, uh, is a, a good friend of my, my mentor, uh, Rick Love. And, uh, He's is the president of uh, Islamic cultural uh, cultural center in Phoenix. Is that the right one, the Islamic cultural center? C- yeah. Okay. Got the, of the committee, uh, community, uh, the community center in Phoenix, and um, he's a he's a very wise guy. And, and Rick speaks highly of him. And I've worked with him before, and I really appreciate him. And we also have Semya, who's here from the Foundation for Intercultural Dialogue. And um, she's a, a Ph.D. student at ASU. She's from Turkey, and, um, and she's, a, she's pretty sharp, too. So we're going to ask them some questions and uh, uh, let them kind of uh, guide us in this conversation. So first of all, if you could tell us a little bit about your organization and um, a little bit about your family. How about that? Would you start, Usama? Yeah, yeah. Uh- is My it? name
3: is uh, Osama Shami. I um, came to the United States in 1980, and that was a tumultuous time. That was during the Iranian hostage crisis. So, hmm. And of all places, I, um, I went to Oklahoma. I hope <laughs> that nobody is from Oklahoma here. Uh,
1: there are a few. A but, few. But of, I feel, uh, go uh, ahead. <laughs> uh,
3: that was an eye-opening uh, experience. I was... Um, I was uh, 17 years old at that time. And um, you come to uh, the United States, you had um, different, uh, I think, uh, different idea of what the United States would mm-hmm. be. And uh, it happens that uh, I went to Claremore, Oklahoma, which is a very small town. Um, <laughs> uh, they f- uh, claim to fame that uh, Will Rogers was, uh, was born in Oligar, but he uh, lived in Claremore. Hmm. but uh, at that time it was uh, you know you talked about tense moments and it seems that uh, there is a cycle that it keeps on repeating every few years and at that time uh, that cycle was in full swing and uh, it was very hard for people to understand the difference between a palestinian or an iranian but anybody who spoke with an accent was was an iranian so um, it really shaped my view at that time because all of these people claimed to be uh, Christians. Mm. They were church-going people, and uh, yet uh, they were very prejudiced.
1: Mm.
3: Now, it's good that that was not the impression, the lasting impression that I had. You mm. know, because you know, after after two weeks in the states, called my father. I said, please get me out of here. <laughs> and he said, well, I paid a lot of money for you to go, <laughs> so you stick, stick with it. Uh, you know, after a couple of years, I moved to uh, Tucson, and I graduated from U of A. Sorry for ASU fans.
1: <laughs> you did not win uh, many fans <laughs> here with that. <laughs> uh,
3: so I got my bachelor's in mechanical engineering, my master's in, uh, in nuclear engineering, and um, I started working in, uh, in Tucson. Then uh, I moved around. I lived on the East Coast. I lived in Connecticut, which is a fantastic experience. I didn't like the weather, but it was a very nice, uh, nice area of the country. Then I lived in San Francisco for a while, and then I came back to Phoenix. Now all, of th- all through these years, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I guess when you start when you come from the Middle East, Uh, A lot of students at that time were not really religious. And then when you encounter such an experience where you're basically targeted because of your faith, I was not even practicing at that time. It was like, well, uh, you know, that drives you into starting to practice your faith. I started being involved in the community when I came to Phoenix. Uh, When I lived in Tucson, when I lived in Connecticut, i just go to mosque and, uh, you know, Friday prayer, but I wasn't involved in the community. And uh, it was by chance that in, you know, 1998, uh, we were living in in Glendale and going to the uh, mosque that I attend now, that, uh, you know, there was an opening on the board, and they asked me if I would like to join, and I said, yes, uh, but tell me how many hours a week I have to dedicate. And the guy's like, well, it's only a couple of hours a week, you know, but don't worry about it. You know, we have a lot of people that work here and stuff. So, okay. Well, you know, a couple of months after I joined, the guy left. (laughs) And then the rest of the board, you know, they started, everybody's occupied with something and they left. So they ended up, you know, taking a lot of time. But it really makes you grow up and see different things. For example uh, in uh, nineteen ninety eight when I started serving on the board uh, there was a lot of there were a lot of changes. We were getting a lot of waves of refugees from different countries, and you start seeing people with different mindset and people that again similar to the experience that I had when I first came to this country now uh, from nineteen ninety eight until now. I've been serving on the board now the community has grown and uh, actually when I started it was a small mosque and then we moved to a church that we bought renovated uh, two years after that it was too uh, too small to hold uh, services so we built we built a new mosque and if you're driving on i seventeen um, it's on the west side of uh, on i seventeen about half a mile south of south of northern and you can see it from the highway now by the time that the mosque is open, which we expect to be at the end of the year, it's probably going to, uh, again, reach its capacity in a couple of years, which is good news that people are uh, becoming more religious and attending attending the mosque.
1: Can, now, can I ask, there, um, when you were building it, did you have some... Uh... Did you have some challenges or were there, were there any, any vandalism or anything like that that happened? We did have
3: vandalism. Now, except for one incident, I, I don't think it had anything to do with, with being a mosque. I think mm. uh, there were, you know, equal opportunity vandals that, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, you know you're like they, vandal, they, uh, they vandalized a uh, Catholic church. They took uh, statues and stuff. Anyway, I think uh, the story is that if you have copper or metal, you know, you better mm. have them secured. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm married. I have uh, three beautiful children. I have two boys and a girl, and uh, my boys started high school this year. So i um, going through the changes and trying to adjust to mm-hmm. all of the mood swings.
1: That, that's great, Osama. Uh, now, Semiah, would you tell us a little bit about... Um, how you came to America, and then also tell us a little bit about the uh, Foundation for Intercultural Dialogue.
2: Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Semiha, and thanks for having me here tonight. Yeah, thanks um, for coming. So I came to Arizona in 2007 for PhD, and which I still regret.
1: <laughs>
2: but um, it's been a good experience for me so far, and Arizona was... I came here only because it was in the West where I had some friends and they gave me a scholarship, and that was the only reason. I had no idea where Arizona was. I, I had to look at the map after I got the acceptance letter, you know, where is this place? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but before that, I, I was in U.K., in London for a year for my master's mm-hmm. uh, degree. I studied gender and religion there. Uh, so that was my first experience to... Uh, non-Muslim environment, you know, basically, because uh, I always lived in Turkey, and I have the first non-Muslim I seen in my life was in college, uh, my English teacher, and he was a British, and I was just so amazed, like, I mean, how, how come he is not a Muslim, like, I mean, because in my world, there was no non-Muslim up to that time, mm. so, but... You know we we loved we loved him so much that you know we were just almost crying when he left the school yeah. or so that was my first experience with with a non muslim he was actually an, even not a believer, but we we loved him so much, and that's kind of the first step to learn how to love mm. uh, people from different beliefs or no no belief uh, so but in in Turkey, I met a group of people who kind of had this uh ethics of service hmm. so they, they believed that serving other human beings is a pious act in and of itself and they were kind of organizing and building uh, schools and these kinds of dialogue institu- institutions both in Turkey and worldwide so when I went to London I found that group there and I worked at the dialogue uh, society like uh, for two months or something And then when I came to Arizona, I found those guys here, too. So Mm -hmm. Foundation for Intercultural Dialogue, here it was. The people in Arizona, they established that foundation in 2004. And basically, what they're doing is everything. (laughs) It's like giving lectures, having hiking or cooking classes, book clubs, and uh, turkey trips whatever you can imagine that will bring people together, just to share something. You know, it doesn't have to be a religious activity at all. And it's not named interfaith dialogue, it's intercultural dialogue, which also involves the interfaith dialogue. So in that sense, I mean, if you want to hang out with Muslims, like, I mean, we are there, we're just doing everything that you want to do. And like, I mean, you don't have to make cookie and come, you can make it together in our cooking classes.
1: <laughs> See, it just got easier.
2: Yeah. So, this is what FID is, like, I mean, in, in general. So, we are trying to find and use every opportunity to spend time with the local community here, both with the Americans, are also from different nationalities. So, we're enjoying it, first of mm. all. I mean, it's it's I, I'm enjoying it, and I see it as a pious act. It's kind of win-win situation for me, hopefully.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, so, w- that's it.
1: Yeah, well, you're doing good work. And... Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an honor for me to be here because I know the work that you guys have done for our community. And I deeply love this city, and you have helped it be a better place, and I appreciate that. Uh, furthermore, I'm impressed because I think between the two of you, you have more degrees than I have credits. So uh, so um, with that said, uh, Osama, would you, would you mind sharing with us... Um, since we don't have we don't have a ton of time here, but I've I got questions from different people um, in the community here. One of the questions was, people hear about the five pillars of Islam, the, the the basic five pillars, and don't always know what that means. Would you share what those five pillars are? Uh,
3: uh, Islam Islam has a
1: and maybe it, it got disconnected here. Here we go. This is the uh, the benefit of doing communion each week is you learn how to work the handheld so uh,
3: Islam has the faith system in islam they have you have the belief system and you also have the actions mm-hmm. so uh, the five pillars of uh, of Islam has to do with the worship mm-hmm. side of it so um, if, you, um, if you allow me i 'd like to talk about first... Uh, Six articles of faith, which uh, which is which is the belief part of it. And the sixth article of faith is believing in one God, believing in God's angels, God's messengers, God's uh, um, uh, scriptures, the holy the revelations, and then believing in resurrections, resu- the resurrection on the day of judgment, and then believing in God's divine decree. So those are the six articles of faith, and then. And then, after that comes comes the actions part of it, which is the five pillars, and the five pillars is uh, taken uh, or saying that uh, uh, the uh, called the Shahada or the uh, witnessing bear witnessing that there is no God but uh, but Allah and then and then establishing prayer and then paying paying alms and then fasting the month of Ramadan and then the fifth one is performing pilgrimage once in a lifetime, hmm. but this is part of of the belief system because you have you have a belief you have actions the five pillars of islam pertains to the relationship between a person and god mm-hmm. but the other part of it is the interactions with others which is also as important as the relationship with god because if you maintain a good relation with relationship with god but you don't have good relations with others then then you you haven't completed your faith mm-hmm. and prophet muhammad said that uh, asked he asked his companions, he said, do you know who's the bankrupt? And he said, they said, well, the bankrupt is somebody that doesn't have a penny. Mm-hmm. And he said, no. The bankrupt is somebody that comes on the Day of Judgment with a lot of prayer and a lot of worship and, you know, a lot of charity. But but he cheated this guy and he murdered this guy and, and he backbited this guy. So, so basically this guy ruined all of his actions by... Uh, all of his good deeds by his actions with other people so then uh, the prophet said that all of his good deeds or, or merits will be taken away to recomp- recompense other people that he wronged so that's the complete belief okay. system is uh, the part of it is, is is the belief part and then the inter- the actions with god the worship part and then the interaction with others
1: okay sure sure samia would you um would you? Would you tell us about? Um, since we only have a certain amount of time, I've got to figure out which questions we're going to ask here. Um, I mean, we can stay sure. Here. <laughs> we, yeah. Well, we have childcare, so we got to get folks out. Um, would you? Would you share with us um, what you would say uh, are some of the most misunderstood aspects of Islam? Um,
2: well, I will start with the. Women, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the most, I guess, misunderstood thing about Islam is that, you know, it's whenever people see me, like they think that I'm, you know, a victim or oppressed or kind of basically not an agent who can use her own free will and choice. So I think that's the first thing, you know, at least I experience as something misunderstood that, you know, the wearing the headscarf or veiling is something that I take up as a pious act. And it might be also the in to the interest of some male authorities, but that does not make it uh, a tool of patriarchy in my eyes. To some it can, but to, as a Muslim woman, I do not see it as a, as a means of oppression. So uh, I see it as a kind of means to get closer to god by reminding myself of who i am you know to, to me that's what the wailing means rather than just covering yourself against all these unfriendly eyes i don't see for example the covering practice as a way of escaping from the society or secluding women into a private realm that's not the uh, that's not the function of the veil or the headscarf for me, and not for all women who wear it. So, just do, you know, do, you do not have to pity yeah. Muslim women who are wearing the the headscarf. You know, that will be the first thing.
1: Now, now let me ask: in Turkey, not all women uh, wear the, the headscarf. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, because as I said, it's it's a pious act, and you know, you are just you try to do as much as you can, and you have the choice. Obviously, like, uh, and you must have the choice in Turkey because of the political situations. We did not have that choice of wearing the scarf because we were, you know, it was forbidden to wear the scarf at universities and now, you know
1: to work. So people need to understand to hear this. In Turkey, it's not it's against the rules. Is it still against the rules? Yes, to wear the headscarf in um, political uh, in public buildings. And universities and schools. So actually when she's going to school at ASU she has more freedom to wear the headscarf than she did when she was in Turkey, correct?
2: Exactly. So I think it's also part of this misunderstanding that some people think it as an oppression to women and mm-hmm. they think that they are liberating women by banning wearing the the, the headscarf, but it's actually, you know um, oppressing me in, in another way that preventing me to hmm perform my own piety in my own way. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that would be, I think, the first thing to have in, in, in mind, you know, hearing from me. I guess you would believe in, in that, right? I mean. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's good. Um, and, uh, Osama, would you, um, would you tell us some of the, the, the challenges uh, that, that Muslims face in America? What are some of the difficult things that some Muslims go through?
3: I guess uh, uh, one of them is the misconceptions, as, uh, mm-hmm. as Samiha was saying. Yeah, that um, people face a lot of misconceptions because, you know, as you showed, the media, the media portrays Muslim in a certain way. Mm. And uh, not only that. I mean, this is uh, this is very tame. I mean, uh, there a lot of uh, mm. there's a lot of uh, uh, media outlets that that. They're they're promoting the idea that uh, there is no such thing as a good Muslim or, you know, that all of them are bad and they're all here. Uh, they have this plan of taking over. And, 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 and you know, that's why you see uh, states like Oklahoma, one of them, is passing uh, anti-sharia law as if this is something that's really happening all the time, that courts look at sharia law before before they decide court uh, cases. But, but this is uh, one thing that, that Muslims face, that uh, basically uh, – even, even untold or unspoken discrimination. Uh, I always uh, tell my, my friends that for Muslims uh, that, that come from the Middle East or Muslim countries, uh, being with a Christian is, is something normal. Hmm. I mean, I lived, uh, I lived in many countries. I lived in Lebanon, which you know, almost 40% or 30% of the population are Christians. And our neighbors were Christians. So we didn't have a problem with that. They, you know, it never registered when you talk to somebody to ask them about their faith. Mm-hmm. But here, the, the problem is that a lot of Christians haven't lived with Muslims. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of the misconception also is that, uh, you know, people think that you, uh, you're you exotic. You know, your faith is like, you know, I had, uh, you know, talking about, uh, the God of the Muslims is not the same God as the Christians. And, uh, you know, they, they worship a pagan God and, and all of this stuff. I mean, they, they make us sound as if we're weird people and beat our women and stuff. They should come to my home and see who's get, who gets beaten. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> that's <brilliant>. But anyway, <laughs> besides the point, <laughs> I mean, uh, Muslims are normal people like like everybody else i mean they they have their faith yes there are differences between christians and muslims that that we're not minimizing but at the same time they're people of faith and i wish that all people of faith they can collaborate on a lot of things because they have very similar agendas
1: Hmm.
3: and very similar vision to the society and how it should be
1: yeah now you mentioned the word sharia and uh we had a few people who were asking about two terms. I'm going to give you one term and I'll give you uh, the other term. Um, we hear in the media the words Sharia and Jihad quite a bit. So if you could uh, help us understand what the word Sharia means and then Semiah, if you could do Jihad. Uh,
3: sharia is, uh, is a divine, divine, the divine law. I mean, Christianity, they have a divine law. The, um, Judaism, they have a divine law. Now, the problem is that media... Uh, uh, only stresses on the Sharia law because every time they show you a Sharia law or they talk about Sharia law, they show you a Taliban beating a woman. That's, that's what they show you. And, and that's, that's in, in, ingrained now in the mind of, of Westerners. Or they show you somebody being beheaded. As if this is Sharia law. Sharia law touches uh, every aspect of a Muslim life. Inheritance, marriage. Divorce, uh, how to raise your children. The aspect of punishments, or called hudud in, in Islam, this is a minor aspect of the Sharia law. Mm-hmm. What I would like to tell my Christian friends is that Sharia law is, is the reason why there are still churches in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Because Sharia law also deals with how to deal with minorities. How to deal with people of the book who are Christians and Jews. That's part of Sharia law. And if Sharia law was not applied, then Muslims would not have protected churches that are, that are all over the Middle East. And it wouldn't have protected Christians that lived in the Middle East, protected them from conversions and protected them from being killed. That's what uh, the Sharia law touches, touches all aspects of life. The part of the punishments, I just have to uh, to just comment a little bit on that, that basically punishments are hard. And, and again, they're not different than the, than the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's that's, that's the same thing. But if you understand Sharia law and how punishments are applied, actually the punishments are severe, but to prove a punishment, is very hard to prove the the guilt is very hard and the punishments are severe to prevent people from doing those things. Mm-hmm. So when when you know that if you kill somebody you're going to get killed. Well, to prove that you kill somebody you have to have witnesses seeing the crime and stuff. That deters people from killing. That's the point of the punishment. It's not to be uh, to be severe because because Muslims they like to uh, you know
1: they they
3: they people they like to see People being whipped and killed and stuff is to prevent people from committing these crimes.
1: Okay, and if you could take the, the jihad question, and then I will just add, and then I'll ask one more question, and then we'll wrap up the night. Go ahead. Um,
2: well, jihad actually means struggle to strive, and it's actually related even to the word with with ijtihad, like uh, and free reasoning. So it's also a result of a struggle to find to reach at the truth. So jihad is very much related to the establishment of the truth, which is the, the belief in one God, and uh, so jihad is done when there is a there's a barrier preventing the believers to reach at that truth, and then they are being kind of oppressed. So it can be done in many different ways. So if you're living in the in the Middle Ages, and the way of struggling is with the fighting, you do the fighting. If you are living in the 21st century and the struggle is done with writing, you do the writing. So mm. writing articles t- defending Islam or kind of, uh, for example, criticizing the, the, the movie on the prophet is a form of jihad for us mm. as well. So because you are struggling, you're striving for the sake of your religion, for the sake of the truth. And it should not be reduced into the the war like and it is very much abused by the modern day uh, I would call fundamentalists which have who have more political aims than religious ones they mm-hmm. are just kind of guised within the religious discourse but the, the the main problem should be sought in in the political uh, problems that that's created through centuries of uh, struggles and problems which you know you cannot understand today's jihadists without looking at the colonization history or even before that. So it's not something that up in the air suddenly people come up with the idea of let's do jihad. It's There is a historical process giving way to that way of reacting to the you know oppression they felt for all these centuries. And then jihad basically became... Uh, and turned into an ideology for some groups as a a means of struggle or independence, Mm -hmm. let's say. So it's kind of, uh, you must be very careful in understanding the context in which the word is used, by whom the word is used. Here, now, I am doing jihad in my own sense. I am telling about myself, my religion. So I'm I'm trying to tell about the truth. So this is kind of my own jihad coming to the us and being living with the, my christian neighbors and being friends with them and thus you know introducing them with the real i would call face of islam is a jihad to me so mm. in in that sense i take jihad as a virtue in itself but which is hijacked by a group of people who have different uh, traumatic experiences that may, made them use and embrace that notion as a means of struggle,
1: I would say. So in other words, um, it doesn't mean strictly this violent concept of war, but it can even mean to to struggle in in ways of of building friendships with people and rightly living out your your faith. Um, And I think it's also important for us to know that a lot of the violence that happens in the Middle East is actually local politics that doesn't have anything to do... Uh, with America, other than a, in, in, in some kind of domino effect uh, sorts of ways, but it's not all one group who has the same mentality, but you have a lot of uh, local politics happening right there. Um, so the, the last question I'm going to ask uh, before we close the night is, um, would you give us any advice? Would you give uh, the folks out here any advice if they have a Muslim neighbor, or if they have... Um, a coworker on how to just build uh, build friendships and and those sorts of things um, seems like a pretty easy concept. But I know you're really good at it, Usama. So if you could maybe. Answer uh, that. I would say that
3: uh, I would say first that probably you know more Muslims than you would think, hmm. but maybe you have a stereotype of uh, what a Muslim looks like.
2: Hmm.
3: And I always give an example uh, that when I was. Uh, uh, I moved to an office. I worked for Arizona Public Service, and uh, I, was, I, I was moving to a new office. And uh, I was there for about five, six months, and um, two ladies in cubes next to me, they were talking about, I, I can't remember what incident happened, but there was something happening in the Middle East, and they were talking about the news. And they were saying, well, you know, have you seen this on the news? And they were talking, and then they said, well, you know, it's their faith. It teaches them violence. So I mean, I'm sitting, business, uh, you know, minding my own business. But I said, well, I won't take that. So I went to them and said, you know, you know, no, the faith doesn't teach us uh, to be violent. And and they said, well, why are you saying that? So I'm a Muslim. And then they said, yeah, but you're different than them. It's like, no, I'm not different than. Them. <laughs> but then in, in their mind, they have this different stereotype of what a Muslim looks like. Now. You know a lot of Muslims that live in live in the West, and and not because they live in the West they're like that. Actually, that's the way that they normally act, with the exception of very very few. That uh, you know Samia talked about this ideology that some some people are, you know I, I wouldn't even talk to them, uh, you know because, you know in their minds I'm not a true Muslim, but that's fine. But this is a very minority. The majority of the Muslims that you meet either at work, or in a restaurant or anywhere. They're very friendly people.
1: How uh, many Muslims would you say live in the Phoenix metro area?
3: There's about hundred to 120,000 Muslims that live okay. in the, in the yeah. Phoenix area. There is, uh, There are about uh, 24 mosques mm-hmm. in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Yeah. So there are a lot of Muslims. Actually, there are a lot of Muslims that are not practicing Muslims, that don't come to the mosque. I and mean, I sometimes you, I go to Scottsdale, uh, you know, you, sa- you find a lot of shops that like the owners are Muslims, but you know, I've never seen them before. Yeah. But, again, I mean, they're, they're very friendly people, they're very approachable. Because they come from cultures, that they're, they're very open cultures. that People, like Jim was talking about Turkey, how, you know, this is an experience that if you go to the Middle East, you, you know, even, even though you think that because you're an American, you'll be hated and stuff, you'll find, you'll find the reality is very different. That you can sit in a shop, in a coffee shop, and you can make friends uh, while you're sitting in the coffee shop. So don't, don't let your stereotypes and fears prevent you from, from talking to them. And, uh, and the other thing is that, you know, a lot of Muslims, they don't, they don't uh, mind talking about faith and talking about politics. Actually, that's all what they talk about. <laughs> at least. So, I mean, so bring, can it up. bring it up. Yeah. If you have questions to ask, go ahead and ask them. They're, cool. they're not going to be offended. That's good.
1: Well, I think we've uh, we've actually run out of time here. But if you guys wouldn't mind sticking around for a few few minutes, ten minutes here, so so if you have some other questions, uh, you can come talk to us uh, down in the front. And uh, I want to close our night. I want to want to pray, and uh, then we'll go get the children and we'll finish our sandwiches and go home. Um, God, we are grateful uh, that you have uh, protected us. That you have. Uh, been been here with us tonight you are great you are strong you are mighty we pray your blessing your presence your protection over our muslim neighbors and that they would find uh, good neighbors in us and we pray for us here that we would uh, that we would love in the way of in the way of jesus captivated by his love and uh we pray the blessing on our community on all the, and we pray for, you, for your blessing and your flourishing and your peace in all of the, the, the cities and, and the countries that we see in the media. And we just are grateful that your word is stronger than the words that we hear on television. In Jesus' name, amen.